the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight, Psalm 53. There is actually a title for every psalm. Unfortunately, these titles are not written in Coptic reader. But the title of Psalm 53 is to the chief musician set to Mahalaf, a contemplation of David. The title describes the author, David, the audience to the chief musician, and tune or instrument of the song. This psalm is almost a repetition of Psalm 14. If you compare between Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, more or less they are the same, with a few variations which hardly affect the meaning. Both Psalms contemplate on the foolishness and wickedness of non-believers. Both Psalms show that not believing in the existence of God is a destructive idea and it has substantial consequences and is connected with a wicked life. A person who denies the existence of God actually lives or in most cases lives a wicked life. And both Psalms are attributed to David. And both are dedicated to the chief musician. Chief musician, some commentators said Jesus Christ. Some commentators said he is the head of the choir like Asaph or Ifan or Himan. But in the title of Psalm 53, there is the addition to Mahalath. We did not find this in Psalm 14. And the name of God came seven times in both Psalms. In Psalm 14, it came four times in Hebrew as Jehovah and three times as Elohim. But in Psalm 53, it came only as Elohim the seven times. Jehovah, which means the being, concerns God in his relationship with his people. He is the being. He who is among his people. Whereas Elohim concerned God, the creator. And some may wonder why Psalm 14 is repeated again in Psalm 53 with only minor differences. Could there be 
a repetition in the inspiration? Yes. All repetitions are not vain repetitions. We are slow to learn. And when there is a repetition, God wants to emphasize a certain message to us. Also, this repetition confirms the authenticity of the scripture. Because if we don't believe in the authenticity of the scripture, and the scripture were written by a human being, then we can eliminate this repetition so easily. Why we repeat Psalm 14 and 53? It would have been omitted if it is not inspired by the Holy Spirit. But David, after a long life, found men no better than they were in his youth. So he composed Psalm 14 while he was young. When he was old, he composed Psalm 53 because he found men, people in general, actually no better than they were in his youth. Also Psalm 14 is in the first group of Psalms. The first group is from Psalm 1 to 41. And the focus of these 41 Psalms is on the salvation of a man, individual. Psalm 53 in the second group of Psalms from Psalm 42 to 72 where the focus is on the salvation of the Holy Church, all people, not individual, as in the first group of Psalms. Then, what the word Mahalath means? The word Mahalath occurs only in Psalm 53 and again in Psalm 88, only in these two Psalms. Some say it denotes a stringed instrument that was used at that time. Others believe it refers to the tune of the song. While others said it means chief or band leader. Some translated as St. Augustine as our maladies or our disease. Disease because a form of the word almost identical occurs in Exodus 15.26, Proverb 18.14, Second Chronicles 21.15, which means disease or malady. So, in Psalm 53, it points to the spiritual melody with which all mankind was infected. They believe that it refers to the melody of sin and the weakness it causes to our spiritual life. And according to St. Augustine, it means pain. St. Augustine said, 
for Malif, which is very close to Mahalath, as we find in interpretations of Hebrews' names, seems to say for one travailing or one in pain. That's why they said Mahalath means pain or disease or malady. This psalm is a short psalm, only six verses. Verse 1 speaks about the sad condition of the man who denied divine providence. Verse 2 and 3, heaven's analysis of fallen humanity. Verse 4 and 5, God's defense of his righteous people. Verse 6, a pray for the restoration of Israel. So let's start from verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. So David looked at those who denied the existence of God and came to the conclusion that they are fools. He means a group of men, not a particular individual. When he said, the fool has said in his heart, he doesn't refer to a one particular individual but to the group of people who denies the existence of God. Foolishness is the opposite of wisdom in its highest sense. The fool denotes moral willfulness and determination that there is no God. Not mere ignorance, a one who is ignorant of the existence of God because he never heard about it. Or just weakness of reason. But a willful decision and determination to deny the existence of God. So it implies rejection of God, imprudence, or opposition to his will. The best description of the fool in his folly, we read it in Isaiah, chapter 32, verse 5 and 6. The foolish person will no longer be called generous, nor the measure said to be bountiful. For the foolish person will speak foolishness, and his heart will work iniquity. To practice ungodliness, to utter error against the Lord, to keep the hungry unsatisfied, 
and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. That is the description of the fool. This is not to be understood of hypothetical denial of the existence of God, intellectual denial, but also of a practical denial of his moral authority and his divinity. Meaning, I can say I believe in the existence of God, but in my life, I don't reflect this. Because if I believe in the existence of God, I should walk in the fear of God. But if I say, like the demons, they believe in the existence of God, but all their actions are immoral, so this also a denial of the existence of God. So, God denying man in this psalm, David has in mind not merely troubled by intellectual objections to the existence of God. Not a person has some questions and these questions are not answered. That's why intellectually he cannot accept the existence of God. But in his heart, that's why he said, the fool has said in his heart, means he, even if he can believe in the existence of God, but his behavior and how he conduct himself actually means that he doesn't fear God who exists. So David had in mind is not an atheist for primarily intellectual reasons. That means when we speak with those who deny God, we should not only speak to their mind, but also to their heart. By not believing in God, they ruined and degraded their nature and gave themselves up to practices which God hates. That's why those who said there is no God, they are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. David here considers the result of denying God. It leads men into corruption and abominable iniquity. Corrupt or corruption describe self-degradation of their bitter nature. And the word abominable means the vile character of their conduct in the sight of God. Word abomination means hated by God. Actually, this was the condition of the world before the flood. So here the psalmist talks about the collective corruption that dwelt upon humanity since the fall of Adam and Eve. 
as we read in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 2, and God saw that the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its way upon the earth. So David says this because of the plain evidence that there is a God. If people actually believe in the existence of God, they should walk in his fear. And the evidence of the existence of God is both in the creation. When we look at the creation, we should believe in the existence of Creator. And also in the human conscience. Our human conscience look for a highest power. As St. Paul explained this in Romans chapter 1. The fact that some men insist on denying the existence of God does not erase God from the universe. It instead speaks to their own standing as fools. If I say God does not exist, this will not eliminate or erase the existence of God. But this proves my foolishness. As St. Paul wrote in Romans 1 verse 22, professing to be wise, but they became fools. And nowadays, people who think themselves wise, they deny the existence of God, but actually they became fools. And David said, there is none who does good without a single exception. Men have forgotten the right way. And God from the place of his holiness looks on the children of men and sees how little good there is among men. This verse is written twice in this psalm. There is none who does good. And repeated a third time by St. Paul in Romans chapter 3 verse 12. So when we are choosing to ignore the obvious evidence of the universe and to ignore the revelation of the scripture about God and to ignore our own conscience which seeks out a higher power then we become ignorant and fool David says that the reason people ignore these evidences and declare within their hearts and by their action that there is no God because their ways are vile and corrupt. They don't want anyone to hold them accountable. They don't want anyone to judge them. That's why they deny the existence of God. They want to do things that are right in their own eyes and not right in the eyes of God. And by ignoring God, 
we do not become a better person. Rather, we become a corrupt and a vile people. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. Verse 2, God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, any who see God. Every one of them has turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. So David, starting from verse 2, switches to God's point of view of the situation on earth. While man may wish to forget about God, but God never forgets about us. He is always observing man, looking down from heaven upon the children of men. It is of mankind in general, not looking only on Israel, that the psalmist is speaking. He is not looking only on Israel, but on the whole world. And according to St. Augustine, people may wonder, is God not aware of everything? Why he has to look down from heaven to see? God knows everything. He doesn't have to look down from heaven to see. But the answer that St. Augustine gave was, the holy book often refers to the works of God in human language for our sake, that we may understand. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, the Spirit searches all things, yes, even the deep things of God. Does it mean that the Spirit need to, the Holy Spirit needs to search to know the deep things of God? The Holy Spirit is one with the Father and one with the Son. But this is written, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, searches all things, yes, even the deep things of God. This is written in this way to exhort us to search the divine mysteries by the Holy Spirit. So if you want to understand the mystery of God, you need to search it by the Holy Spirit. The same way when it is said, God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, any who see God, it doesn't mean that God is not aware of that. But the goal of using this expression that God is looking down from heaven is to proclaim to us their actual status, that we may seek salvation from corruption that has dwelt upon us 
So, using this expression to tell us, look your condition now, look the corruption in which you are living right now, so that we may seek salvation from this corruption. God made himself known through the voice of conscience and in the work of creation. But men would not follow the light of conscience or learn from nature. They don't understand. He did not leave himself without witness. God who made the world and everything in it, he is not far from each one of us. For in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. But unfortunately, we choose to be ignorant. We choose to be not understanding. So God looks for men who may understand God's heart and God's plan. God looks for men who may seek Him for righteousness' sake. But is there any person who has understanding? Does anyone comprehend that we exist by the power and might of the Lord? The Lord did look only for sincerity and right desire, but he did not find any. We don't understand the seriousness of sin. We don't understand the hatred of God for sin. We don't understand the power of God to judge sin. Otherwise, why until now we sin? And we are enslaved to many sins. When God looked, he found that man has turned away from God and has therefore become corrupt. Every one of them has turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. In God's eye, Wickedness and sin indeed a form of atheism and it is universal. All of us at one time or another on a continual basis are fools because we ignore God in our lives. When we commit any sin we are denying the existence of God. We choose to live how we want to live and don't place God at the primary importance in our decisions. When God finds none who does good, it is because there are none. Not because there are some but God doesn't see them. It isn't as if they were some who do good and some who understand and God could not see them. And David's use of there is none who does good 
unexpectedly broadens the scope beyond the atheist to include everyone. Because I, I told you, as I told you, anyone who commits sin, it is atheism. Because when we commit sin, we don't respect the existence of God as if we are denying his existence. We may deny God, but our denial does not cause him to go away. He looks down and sees us in our sin and holds us accountable for our sins. Verse 4, God is speaking here. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great fear, where no fear was. For God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you again is the people of God you have put them to shame those who commit iniquities because God has despised them so verse 4 God is the speaker here in verse 4 and 5 the corruption of mankind exemplified in their treatment of God's people. When we deny the existence of God, not only we deny His existence, but we will not treat one another with love, with respect, with compassion, with dignity, with honor. But God in His providence actually he will deliver his own people. So David first considered the profound fallen state of man. Now in verse 4 and 5, he deals with the fate of God's people in such a fallen world. We are living in a fallen world. So, we the children of God, what's our fate? When the enemies of God will devour us, so what's our fate? The workers of iniquity do not learn despite the evidence of God's existence in the world around them, despite evidence of God's presence in the lives of his people but they did not learn and they treat God's people badly they persecute them they devour them so here is the question what about God's people who are devoured by the wicked St. Augustine says those people who are devoured, who suffer from the wicked, who mourn among them, they instead of being men, they will become 
to be children of God, for they have been devoured as men. So St. Augustine said, when we are devoured because of our faith in God, then we become his children, eligible for inheriting inheritance of the kingdom of God. But what about the wicked? St. Augustine says, these human wolves, the wicked, while devouring the human lambs, the people of God, and drinking their blood, will themselves sometime be transformed into meek lambs, as it happened with Saul of Tarsus. We know Saul of Tarsus was a persecutor, was a wolf, persecuted the children of God, approved the martyrdom of St. Stephen. But after devouring and eating the people of God and drinking from their blood, he became himself a lamb, St. Paul, who was persecuted for Christ's sake. Have the worker of iniquity no knowledge, they did not learn, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God because they called upon their idols. Do not call upon God, they call upon their idols and they don't pray to God. So David sees the end of the ungodly the ultimate triumph of, of God's people. When he said there in verse 5, there they are in great fear. There points to some occasion in which panic, terror, and overwhelming adversity overtook the worker of iniquity who came to devour the people of God. So they became afraid and fearful while there was no fear. And we have many examples in the scripture about this. So David is saying, during a time of attack or siege from an enemy, David trusted that God would put the enemy in great fear, even though their strategic position gives them no real reason to fear, where no fear was. So there is no reason to fear. But God actually sent this fear and terror to their hearts. There were many times when God sent fear into the hearts of Israel's enemies. Some examples include Joshua against the Canaanites, Gideon against the Midianites. In all these examples, people, the enemies of God, became fearful, although there was no reason to fear. Jonathan and his armor bearer against the Philistines, as we read, and there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and the raiders also trembled. 
and the earth quaked so that it was a very great trembling and there was no reason for this fear and another story Hezekiah against the Assyrians then he said for God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you against the children of God you have put them to shame them are the enemies of God because God has despised them God answered the fool the fools despised God so God rejected them the fool did not believe in his existence so God rejected them they were unsuccessful in their attempt to persecute the children of God God has shown that they were not to be feared we the children of God we should not be afraid of the persecutors of the church therefore it is no wonder if they could not stand before him the enemies of God cannot stand before God however it seems that it was not only the fool's denial of God that provoked the Almighty but also the fool's attack against the people of God provoked him too not only the denial of his existence that provoked God but how the enemies of God deal with the children of God also provokes him as God said to Saul Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? we might say that attacking God's people is just as foolish as denying the existence of God attacking God's people is as foolish as denying the existence of God and God's people may look with despise upon their enemies since they are also the object of divine disapproval last verse verse 6 oh that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when God brings back the captivity of his people let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad David concludes with a prayer for the full restoration of Israel he is expressing a great desire for salvation rejoicing and gladness when God restores his people to their land and spiritual meaning when God restores us from the land of sin to salvation David knew that God was a refuge for his people and that the workers of iniquity would never win yet that was hard to see at the present time so David expressed his great longing that God would bring victory and deliverance he had promised to his people 
So as if he's saying, God, you promised victory, triumph and deliverance. Now I am longing to see this victory and this deliverance to happen. And from Zion, oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out from Zion, because Zion is the place of God's presence. And Jesus Christ came from Zion to deliver the whole humanity from the slavery of sin. Captivity here is used in a general sense, but speaking of any time or situation where God's people are oppressed and bound, when he said, when God brings back the captivity of his people, but also our captivity to sin is the core spiritual element of our enslavement. Through true repentance, God deliver us from the slavery of sin and the world. So David anticipated the coming deliverance and called the people of God to be joyful in consideration of it. So as if he is saying, don't wait until the deliverance will happen. We trust that the deliverance will happen. So rejoice and be glad right now. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. And we know that we are the spiritual Israel, we are the spiritual Jacob. So in faith, we know that God exists. And we know that God will act for his people in his time. Though we may go through long periods of oppression and persecution, we will still take a strong hope and confidence in God. And we will rejoice even in the midst of tribulation. This concludes Psalm 53. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.